listening to First Church Charlotte. I am in a series entitled Love and Holiness, and we're having some fun with spelling on holiness because it is spelled with a W, and I am going to show you a scripture that I, I'm, I'm really enjoying using as my theme scripture uh, here in this in this series. Uh, it is First Thessalonians chapter five, verse number twenty-three. First, we're going to read it in the New King James Version, and then uh, we will read it in the Message Translation. And so today. Lesson two, sermon two, uh, love and holiness. Go ahead and give me Second Thessalonians on the screen in the New King James Version. Uh, I will read it to you. I don't have it. There we, okay, that's the message. We're going to read that next. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's probably close to how you have read it many, many times. I want to read it in the message translation. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, say that with me, holy and whole, make you holy and whole, put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. I love this passage because I think it puts these two separate ideas uh, into one very useful scripture for us, the idea of the spiritual component of our life where we perceive eternal things, we think eternal thoughts, we are washed from our sinful nature by the, by the precious blood of Jesus, and we begin to live a life that is pleasing unto the Lord. We, we easily think of that in terms of holiness because God is holy. Can I have a big amen? So there is that component, and that is shall we say, the spiritual arena uh, of our life. And there is also the opportunity for us to become whole people. We have been made whole. All of us, all of us, if you live very long, will suffer damage along the way. You will be like uh, uh, a vessel in the sea, and you won't be able to dodge all the storms that you, you, you come across. Hopefully, you'll dodge your fair, fair share. But like the old-time preacher said, everybody's either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or heading to the next one. Uh, we all of us, we all of us live life, and we we sustain struggle. Uh, the truth is, we live this experience of life almost in the sense of a journey. Um, philosophers call this, here's a real five, fancy highfalutin $5 term for you. You can break out on somebody when you're having a debate. They call this the axial model. Now, that's just a real highfalutin way of saying your life is a journey. But now you get to sound formal when you say it. Uh, in this axial model, this, this life as a journey, uh, we are born as children and we become more more and more each day, um, the potential that lies within us. Uh, some of us perhaps look at our lives and we think, I've missed a lot of my potential. Uh, that's a very common human emotion, and it may, in fact, be true, uh, but the end is not yet, and you have 
so much you can accomplish in God simply by taking one step toward him. Can I have a great big amen on that? In fact, I would say the most important thing you can do is your next step. Uh, there may be an indefinite number of mysteries that it might be helpful for you to know. There might be any number of amazing spiritual truths and concepts that you might be able to share, but none of those are important as your next spiritual step. I mean simply this by that. If, if you're not starting with the simple things that you know would make a difference, there's no point in spending a lot of time on the complex things that may or may not someday come into, come into place for you. God wants to have a relationship with every one of us. God wants to walk with you. The whole scripture is about the, un, the, the unfolding of himself, the revealing of God to mankind, and the invitation given over and over and over that we might walk with him, that you might have and I might have a real relationship with God. That is the whole point of the scripture. That is why Jesus said, I am the way, not I show you the way, but I am the way. I am the truth, not I I reveal the truth and I am the life, not I'll show you the life. He literally lives a divine invitation to relationship. And when the church is started on the day of Pentecost and they, they are in the upper room, uh, this issue is for Edel ever settled, was started all the way back at Solomon's temple where Solomon says, will God abide with man? Will God take up residence with man? They had built a temple and the Lord answered by fire. The spirit of the Lord fell upon the house. There were 120 priests in that house. And the Bible says they could not even minister. Why? When God is there, he can can do more on accident than we can ever accomplish on purpose. And so on the day of Pentecost, when the church is founded, you see the image of the same thing. The same question is being asked. Will God abide with man? Is it possible that we have direct relationship with him? Will he always be behind a veil? Will he always be protected by this inner wall of separation and this veil separating presence from presentation? Is this the way it will always be? Well, no, it will not always be this way because a wind begins to blow, a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind. There were about 120 there, just like there had been 120 priests. And guess what? Cloven tongues like fire. What, what is all this about? This is all about God with us. God is always inviting us to a relationship. You can start right now drawing nigh unto him. And if you will do that, the Bible says he will draw near or nigh unto you. Praise God, somebody. And so progress, spiritual progress and soulful progress and our literal minds within our brains, the physicality of us, the, the, the flesh of us, all of this um, is interlinked and woven together. And spiritual progress begins when we perceive our, our own incompleteness. We begin to make progress when we perceive our own incompleteness. Now, philosophers from bygone ages defined love as five stages or five types. The Bible accepts four of them and rejects the fifth. I'll explain. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian uh, philosopher and apologist, wrote a book called The Four Loves. 
in that these same four definitions of love that the Bible agrees upon, uh, he puts in his book, and the one that is at debate, uh, philosophers believe it's real, the Bible says that's not love, it's real, but that's not love. Here we go. The first type is what the uh, Greek would call storage love. This is uh, family, and oftentimes it begins by proximity and need, and in the early years of your life, you will, you will be in need, and the immediate family, you literally are in need, um, and you are bound together in common interest, and hopefully, hopefully you have uh, love that is more than duty. Uh, however, if you never develop beyond that once you get to adulthood and you begin to drift apart. If you don't transfer family relationships into friendships, what you'll be left with is a sense of duty and nothing more. Um, so these first two loves are directly related to this arena of our life. You have storage, which is affection or familial type love, and you have filio, which is friendship. Uh, or affection style of uh, love, but typically storage would refer to family and filio would refer to friendship. This is what we're talking about today, but let me give you a little more uh, before we get started here or as we're getting started. Uh, storage, filio, number three is eros. This is romantic love. Finally, agape, divine love. The Bible will use all four of these examples to teach you something about the nature of God and his desire to have a relationship with you. Let me say that to this side. The Bible will use all four of these loves to teach you about the nature of God and his desire to have a real relationship with you. He will use the terms and examples of family. You will no longer be your own but he will adopt you into a family. He will do more than that. He will give you his name. You will no longer be spiritual orphans. If you want to understand God and his love and commitment to you, you need to see how just as a family embraces and is committed one to another, that is how God is with his people and that is how his people are one to another because of his love and that is how his people are. That We literally become a family. It teaches us, the nature of God and his desire for a relationship with us, but more than just that, family love. He will use the terminology of friendship to teach us something about his nature and to teach us something about his desire for a relationship with us. Third, he will use romantic love. Now, this can be somewhat more awkward for us, um, yet the Bible is completely uh, without any reticence on this. It completely will use this example of romantic love with uh, um, a man and a woman as an example between God and his people. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible that is written as an example of romantic love teaching us about the nature of God. We call it the Songs of Solomon. Uh, it literally is insight into the heart, the heart of God. And finally, the Lord will teach us 
us through the scripture agape love. This is divine love. This is perfected love. This is love that is beyond human understanding. This is what God has for you. The reality, all the human experiences of love, the closest that I think we would ever get to agape would probably be, probably, probably be shown in the example of a parent who for some reason or another, some circumstance, had to live their life for the sake of their children and they had, to, they had, to, they had nothing that they were getting in return for it. Uh, maybe their children had even rejected them, but they were doing everything they could. This is the, as close. I believe, as the human example gets to agape love, where it is truly selfless love. You see, most human love goes like this. I love you, but if you're mean to me long enough, I'm going to be mean back. Can I have an amen from all the carnal people? Can I have all an amen from all the people who are pretending to be spiritual, but they just know exactly what I'm talking about? That's what I, yeah, I should get a big amen from some of you suckers over here. That's all I got to say about that. I want you to see human love, uh, even even with uh, sibling to sibling, especially as husband to wife, even parent to child, your, your children, even your, it's, it's silly at times, but children can hurt your feelings and parents can hurt your feelings and uh, brothers and sisters, we all know they want to kill each other most days that end with why. And uh, this is the truth. You know, I know it's like the, the t- story I told a couple Sunday school about going to the wedding and they wrote vows to each other and all these amazing statements. I will always, and then after a few years of marriage, you're like, look, if you're mostly nice to me, I'll be mostly nice to you. That's, that's, about, that's about the truth. Um, so I, I want you to see agape love is beyond that. And when the Bible shows us the love of God, it is showing us an unselfish, sacrificial love that is indeed always kind, always patient, long-suffering, desires the good for someone else and this is the sign the final apologetic this is the sign of the Holy Spirit's maturity within the believer that we begin to offer to the world agape love agape love is not approval it is not permission it is pure I want the best for you and I will sacrifice me in order that you might find something that is good. This is what agape love is. All of these are going to be used in the scripture. Uh, lucky for you, I'm not going to give you examples, all of them today. The, the, I mentioned a fifth love that uh, some of the Greek philosophers talked about that is not honored in the scripture. And interestingly enough, that is epithumia, epithumia, which is a deep passion, wanting, or what we call lust. The Bible says, no, lust is real. Lust is part of the human story, but that's not love. And so that is the so-called love that the Bible does not accept, this, this lust and desire as passion. So today, uh, because the Bible uses all four of those uh, four loves that I uh, mentioned to you, um, I, want to, I want to focus primarily on, on this uh, filio, this, this friendship, because again and again in the Bible, you will see this referenced, you will see this celebrated, and I, I think it's appropriate for us to take a take a Sunday and folk focus upon that uh, there is a delusion that us 
modern people are, are seemingly more and more inclined toward, and that is, and that, is that our happiness results from a, a perfected independence. When we get ourselves organized enough and we perfect our independence, then uh, we understand and discover what, what happiness is. As though we could say, if I'm financially independent, if I'm relationally independent, if I don't need anybody, uh, then I am happy and then then I am strong, and yet, in some strange way, uh, we have never, never had more unhappy people in, um, in our, our society. Uh, here's the thing, and I'm going to try to show you this here today. Um, happiness, or let me, let me say it this way, happiness does not come from being independent isolated, living your life with your barriers up and your masks on and your pretenses prepared and living, keeping others at an arm's distance. That is not the way to be happy. I'm going to show you that happiness comes from interdependence, not independence. It comes from connection. It comes from community. And God's plan, as we read about last week, God's plan is to place orphans in families. And however isolated you feel in your spirit here today, I want you to know God has a plan for you. He wants to plant you in a spiritual family. However separated you feel, however distant you feel from others, God wants to place you in his family. Can I have a big amen? All right, let me give you some, some, some information that I think will help convince you of this, of this what I want to share with you. Uh, author by the name of Ruth Whitman wrote a book entitled America the Anxious, How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a, Ner- a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. She tells the story about how she moved to the state. She is a researcher um, into uh, these issues of, of psychology and, and um, human happiness and what does it mean to flourish, and how does one flourish. Uh, She moved from uh, the UK to live in the United States, and she didn't know anybody here. And she realized that she was very, very lonely. She was working. She had... She had, you know, obligations and whatnot, uh, but she did not have friends here in, in America, and uh, this became an increasing problem for her as she realized that um, this was not a great way to live. This was not a way to flourish, and so she, she went online, and she looked for a happiness app that she could download on her phone, and she found not one, but she found thousands of them, and she, she did not know which one to download. They all promised bliss. They all promised to teach you to meditate or make you be grateful or send you photo montages of sunsets or puppies or uh, of the like. And then these kind of affirming statements uh, would be uh, sent to her. And uh, she said, the app I eventually chose messaged me every hour or so with a positive affirmation that I was supposed to repeat to myself over and over. So she'd be by herself and her phone would buzz and she'd grab it and it would say, I am beautiful. And then in small text, say this to yourself for the next hour. So for an hour, she would say, I am beautiful. Want to try that with me? I am beautiful. I am beautiful. I feel really stupid, but I am beautiful. (laughs) An hour later, her phone would buzz again, and it would say, you are enough. Say this to yourselves. I am enough. I am enough. I am enough. Okay. 
And she says this, and she tells about this in her book. Every time her phone would buzz, it'd be like buzz. And she, she said this. She said, I would have this Pavlovian. Now, remember the old science exam, example of Pavlov's dogs? And he wanted to train them to anticipate food. And so he would ring a bell, and the dogs would start salivating. They were ready to eat. It's kind of like me. Every day my watch says 12 o'clock, I want to eat. It's, it's, it's been proven scientifically. Uh, he would ring the bell. She said that's, that's the way she was. She would, her phone would buzz and she would snatch it because she would think to herself, oh, someone's messaging me. Oh, someone. And she'd grab it, but it wouldn't be anybody. It would be an app saying, say to yourself, you are enough. You are enough. She said, um, I would snarl bitterly upon realizing the truth, unable to shake the feeling that without friends or community, I really wasn't enough. She says how her Facebook feed would send her postcards that say, happiness comes from within. And uh, a few days later, another meme would come in and discover yourself. And she says this, there would be a backdrop of a woman contorted in a yoga pose so torturous. It looked as though she might actually be investigating her own innards trying to locate her bliss. That's funny. Um, <laughs> she said variations would be this. Happiness is determined by not what has happening around you, but what's happening within you. And we hear that, us modern people, and we're like, yeah, they have a point. There, there is a point there, and if you'll stay with me, I'm going to try to talk a moment about that. Uh, memes like this, happiness is not dependent on other people. Uh, another one, happiness is an inside job. And uh, she began to wonder about this. She was a researcher. She spent a lot of time studying human flourishing. She spent a lot of time researching what people people uh, actually uh, define their lives as and just how happy they really were. And as she began studying and looking, she realized that society has changed. Maybe it was a part of the fact that so many of us are living alone now and our society is more fragmented and people are uh, renting apartments and condos for one and building houses for one. And I think uh, 60% of adults now live uh, uh, live alone. And, and she began to wonder about this and begin to to study this and she began to see how isolationist philosophy was showing up in every part of modern life. Happiness pursuits were now defined as something you did by yourself. She said spiritual practice used to be communal, uh, but now it was uh, individual. And religious practice used to be uh, communal, a community-based endeavor. Now it had been slowly changed to a private endeavor with things like silent meditation retreats celebrated or mindfulness apps or yoga classes to discover yourself. It used to be socials. It used to be dances. It used to be picnics. It used to be ballparks. It used to be church socials. It used to be collective worship. And now a billion dollar self-help industry telling you how all you need is you. Nearly half of all the meals in this country are now actually eaten alone. That used to not at all be the case. Teenagers and young millennials spend less time 
hanging out with their friends than any generation in recent history, and they replaced real-world interaction uh, with cell phone, smartphone interaction. And it's not just young people. Bureau of Labor Statistics has a broad category called hosting and attending social events. This covers any type of party or organized social event. Um, The average American now spends averaged four minutes a day hosting or attending any type of social, social event. Four minutes a day, and yet we spend three hours a day watching TV. We spend uh, between 45 minutes and an hour a day grooming, um, self-reflection, self-introspection, and uh, solitude have their place. And I want to take a moment and say a few things to, uh, to you about this difference. Last week, I started this series telling you a story about uh, Adam created in God's garden. I took you all the way through the Genesis story, and I pointed out the things that God God had given Adam as foundations, necessary things that you have to find in your life. The first thing the Lord gave him was a place where he belonged and he was protected. God placed him in a garden. All of us need safe space. Can I have a big amen on that? All of us need a place of protection and God gives Adam that. And the next thing that God gives him is provision. The Adam was, the, uh, the, excuse me, the garden was filled with things that Adam could nourish himself with. All of us need provision. These are foundational things in, in our life. Secondly, uh, Adam needed mastery. He needed something that he would become good at. And I pointed out that even if you had lots of money, you still would want to exhibit mastery in your life. You might not work for someone else. You might chase a hobby. You might start a nonprofit. You might volunteer. But you still would need to exhibit mastery. You are made that way. Like God, you are a creator and you really are not fulfilled if you are not exercising mastery within your world. And Adam needed that. Adam also needed the presence of God and God gave him this with fellowship. These are all what I refer to foundational things. So what is the difference between doing the hard work that we need to do within ourselves, and being in some way made whole through others. And I like to describe it, I like to describe it on this way. Other people cannot fix you, but they can complete you. And those are not the same things. Other people cannot fix you, but they can complete you. Notice how God has established foundations in Adam's life. Adam has a full plate of becoming, of doing, of living. And the Lord surveys that full plate and says there's something he is lacking, and that is connection. So let me, let me just take a moment here and speak to anyone who is uh, single, uh, whether you may spend the rest of your life single or you may end up, uh, you're just kind of in a relationship, between relationships. Uh, let's just be real here for a moment. Another person cannot fix you. They might, however, could complete you. 
There is things that only you can establish in your life. And this is the honest truth. You have some hard work of becoming. You have some hard work of foundations. This is what God gave Adam. Adam had to have foundations. If you fall into the snare thinking another person will fix you, what you'll do is you'll look for somebody who fixes you and then you'll get married to them and they will try to actually fix you and you will get mad at them because you didn't want to change. There was some guilty laughter over here. I want you to see how real this is. If you're looking for someone to fix you, once you get in the relationship and you're past the you, you what is the, the epithumia phase of it, once you're past that, you will now resent the person for doing the very thing you tried to find them to do. So there is work you need to do. There is foundations you need to build. By foundations, I mean transferring values to virtues. Value is a decision you make. That's the kind of person I want to be. This is the kind of life I want to live. But then you have, let me just be honest, some hard work to turn a value into a virtue where you're no longer trying. It's just who you are. It's what you do. It's the difference in someone that's trying to make themselves going to the gym and someone who just goes to the gym. They're not trying anymore. It's just what they do. That is a virtue versus a value. So all to you who are at a single stage or a single moment, or you are literally going to live much of your life or all of your life as single, I want you to see how you have a full plate, just like Adam, of becoming to do. Just as Adam needed a place, you need place. God will put people and uh his church in your life to give you a safe place. Don't think a person will do for you what the church is supposed to do for you. God will give you a safe place. God will give you provision. I said God will give you provision. Don't look for someone to give you something that you need to find through the blessings and the promises of God in your life. Third, you need to pursue mastery. Don't, all my single people, Listen to me. Don't wait till you find the right person to start your life. You have a full plate right now of things you should be working at. You need to pursue the protection of God. You need that and the place He would put you. You need to pursue the provision of God. You need to pursue mastery. Amen. Man, that's some fine preaching. You need to pursue mastery. Don't look for someone and then say, I'll go to college when I find him. No, go to college now. Pursue mastery now. Don't wait for someone to start a career. Don't wait for someone to start a business. Pursue mastery now. God has given you a full plate. And in the process of becoming, there will be a moment when your next step to spiritual wholeness is connection to someone else. Because there's a day when God says, and I don't just mean that romantically, there's more kinds of love than eros. But your next step will be human, these necessary connections, excuse me, of growth and uh, human wholeness. I want you to see, however, that in the here and now, there is much to be done. And do not wait for somebody to come along 
long for you to start your life. You need to seek as much as possible the blessings, the place that God would put you, the provision he has placed in your life, the mastery you can. And finally, what's the fourth thing Adam needs? The presence of God. The presence of God. Don't wait until you are finally in a relationship to start working in ministry. You should be working in ministry right now. Can I have a big amen? Don't wait till you find the right. You should be volunteering now. You should be showing forth the love of God to your world now. You have a full plate. And so I want to show you how in the scripture this idea, this teaching idea of filio or friendship God uses to show, to teach, to example his word. Let me finish up on this, some of these uh, data here because I want to show you that I'm not just giving you a religious lecture today. I'm showing you something and telling you something that is profoundly, profoundly human. Although self-reflection, introspection, and to some degree solitude are important parts of psychologically healthy life, um, we can get that balance very much wrong. This is me quoting from uh, the book I referenced earlier, academic happiness studies are full of of anomalies and contradictions, but uh, even so, they all reveal this. I'm quoting from the book, or uh, from the the research, but if there is one point on which virtually every piece of research into the nature and causes of human happiness agree, it is this, our happiness depends on other people. I'm still reading. Study after study shows that good social relationships are the strongest, most consistent predictor there is of a happy life, even going so far as to call them a, quote, necessary condition for happiness. That's in the actual, in the actual data, meaning that humans cannot be happy without them. And this is a finding that cuts across race, age, gender, income, and social class so overwhelmingly that it dwarfs their language, any other factor. In other words, according to not just the religious lecture, not just the preacher, not just holy scripture, but according to the actual research of people who don't even claim to be believers in the sense that we are, study after study shows that if you want to find happiness, joy, and wholeness, you should be aiming to spend less time alone. Despite claiming to crave solitude when asked in the abstract, when sampled in the moment, I'm still reading the research, people across the board consistently report themselves as happier than they, when they are around other people than when they are on their own. Surprisingly, this effect is not just true for people who consider themselves extroverts, but equally strong for introverts as well. Introverts just behave differently, but they still need to be with other people. Neglecting our social relationships is, their words, shockingly dangerous to our health. Research shows that a lack of social connections carries with it a risk of premature death comparable to that of smoking and is roughly twice as dangerous to our health as obesity. The most significant thing we can do for our well-being is not to find ourselves or go within. It's to invest as much time and effort as we can into nurturing the relationships we have with other people in our life. 
We need real friendship. The Bible will show this to you over and over. I'm almost done. Stay with me a moment more. The Bible will show this to you over and over. The Bible will use friendship to teach you something about the nature of God. The Bible will show examples of friendship to teach us the way to be in this world. One of the most beautiful pictures of spiritual friendship as our our musicians come, I'm almost done. One of the most beautiful examples of of spiritual friendship, and there's several of these in the scripture, and I, I chose this one because it's something you probably have not heard near as much, but it is the story of the friendship between the Apostle Paul and um, the gospel writer Luke. We don't celebrate that friendship near near as much, but when Paul is in prison, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he writes this poignant phrase. He says this, only Luke is with me. Having gone through so many missionary journeys, through much, so much suffering, shipwreck, snake bite, in perils of enemies, in perils of friends, being hid from people who wanted to kill him, being hid from unbelievers who wanted to kill him, hid from believers who want to kill him, being stoned and sick, shipwrecked and nights spent lost at sea, etc., etc. He writes toward the end of his life and says, only Luke is with me. Now, now Luke was a Greek convert who had become con- uh, converted in Antioch. Remember Paul's first real successful place of ministry uh, in Antioch. Luke was converted there in Antioch. And interestingly, uh, he was a person of fairly high status. He was a, a formally trained physician um, in the Hippocratic, Hippocratic schools of medicine. And he, starting at the second, the first missionary journey was fairly short. It was the first kind of learning and growing uh, how to do this, uh, what we could do. The second missionary journey, there was much longer, um, as was the third. Luke joins the second missionary journey with Paul, and he travels with Paul, and he writes a two-volume history. Um, of the church, a history of the ministry of Paul, a history of the story of Jesus Christ. The first volume we call the Gospel of the Gospel of Luke. The second volume we call the Book of Acts. However, if you put them together, you see they're just one letter. We just split them for organization purposes. They're one letter. Luke was the one to take care of Paul. Luke was the one who brought him food in the prison. Let me explain that. In ancient prison, they had room but not board. (laughs) Um, They didn't feed you. Your family and friends had to feed you. Um, If you had no one to feed you, then you literally ate whatever leftovers was from feeding the guards. And uh, you could starve to death because there was no system of department of prisons that had responsibility to feed you in a humane way. They would let you starve. They they, they did not care. Um, So if you were in prison, your family and friends brought you food. And everyone else is scattered around. Some of them questioning what they're doing. Some of them turned back. Uh, like Demas, uh, some of them uh, doing works and pastoring, and Paul's all alone, and he's writing. He's writing his letters, and uh, Luke is taking care of him. And if you would imagine Luke showing up at whatever prison Paul's held at, and, and he's, he's got food for him for the day, and asking him how he's feeling, uh, the Lord gave the Apostle Paul a personal physician uh, to try to help him along the way. And this deep friendship is, is shown to us shown to us in in the scripture. Paul's story is told to us by Luke. Paul did not write his own history. 
Paul wrote epistles, but he did not write a biography. But starting at chapter number 11 in the book of Acts, Luke, the writer, the church historian, the physician, he gives us a biography of the Apostle Paul. And in four passages in the book of Acts, Luke writes and says, we, because every time these things are happening, Luke is right there with him. Paul had no one who went longer with him than Luke. Paul had no one who saw more dangerous circumstances than Luke. Uh, Luke, you might say, or I'll say it this way, Paul never had a better friend. He took care of him. He made him better than he was. He wrote down his story. He didn't want something from him. He wanted something for him. It's easy to overlook the importance of having a friend who isn't in your life to compete with you, but is there to help you compete. Um, If you have friends who are basically there to compete with you, I would encourage you to try to redefine that friendship. And if you're a friend who competes with your friends, I would like to encourage you to redefine that friendship. See it as a weakness in yourself to do that. That's, that's some good preaching. You don't even have to say amen. I'll just go another 45 minutes. Don't bother me at all. Um, it's a tragedy when your friends uh, feel like the, you, if they compete with you too much, you secretly wonder if they're happy when bad things happen to you. And that is the death of friendship. So I want to give you three reasons in conclusion why you need friends. uh, And then I'm going to end with uh, scripture showing us friendship in our relationship with God. Number one, it's life is much safer when you do it with friends. Ministry is much safer when you do it with friends. There's an old, uh, well, let me, let me read this first. There's a, a natural safety in numbers. Uh, It's a whole lot less risky. The wise man, Solomon, said it best. Ecclesiastes 4 and 10. Woe to him who is alone when he falls. He has no one to help him up. It's safer to do anything with friends. Number two, support changes everything in your life. Um, Support will keep you from giving up. The lowest moments of my life when I was most inclined to give up, it was me connecting with friends that kept me in the race. And I'm sure that's probably true for more than a few of a few. Support changes everything. Support changes what you think you can accomplish. Support changes what you believe you can reach for. There's an old Zambian proverb that goes like this. When you run alone, you run fast. But when you run together, you run far. Support changes everything. Geese fly south together for a reason. Because to do it alone risks exhaustion and death. The only way they can fly that far is if they share the load of breaking the wind. And that's why they fly over in the shape of these. Because everyone downwind is resting behind the work of the lead goose. To go south alone is to risk death by exhaustion. Support changes everything. And number three, it's just plumb smart, as we say in the south, to have people in your life who can uplift you, who can strengthen you, who can help you, who can challenge you. The Bible says, Proverbs 26, only fools trust in what they alone think is right. 
This idea of friends, God will use this to teach you about him and about your relationship with him. James 2, verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Jesus said to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know who, what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. I have called you friends. And finally, greater love hath no man than this. And I'm not reading all the scriptures, I'm just uh, re- referencing a handful. Greater love hath no man than this that someone laid down his life for friends. God does not want a simple master-servant relationship with you. Did you hear what I said? God does not simply want a master-servant relationship with you. God wants to have not just a formal relationship with you. God wants to have an informal relationship with you. What do I mean by that? Here we are in his presence. We made time, the band prepared, the preacher prepared. We're here to worship and we're here to praise and his presence is here. I felt him from before the service started in the prayer room. His presence is here. And I believe he will meet you here and he will touch your body and I believe he'll heal your need. If you have a need, you need to let your faith rise that today you could receive your healing. But more than simply the formality of master and servant or the formality of creator and created. There is a friendship invitation where you don't just spend Sunday with him. You spend Monday with him. You spend Tuesday with him. You carry him into the ordinariness of your life. You open uh, the ordinariness of your days, the regularness of your life. You open this to God and you spend time with him as your friend. This image is so powerful that God gives it to us as a symbol of perfection in the Garden of Eden. And they spent time together in the relaxing part of the day. This is an opportunity that comes to all of us. And so, yes, friendship starts. Yes, friendship starts with common interest. If you want to draw nigh unto the Lord, start caring about eternal things. And you'll find yourself drawing nigh unto him. It's going to start with common interest, but it's going to end with true fellowship, spiritual at one I want to be a friend of God. Would you stand with me all across the house? I'm going to pray over you and then our pastoral team is going to come down. Our worship team is going to lead us in worship and we're going to turn this whole house into a a prayer season, a a time of believing God for his miraculous touch. And I, I just want to say I believe because I'm in the business of looking for the miraculous that God will answer your prayer here today and we as a church will celebrate uh, what God is doing in your life. Uh, but before we do that, let's, let's, just, let's, let's just stand together in his presence and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are here today and we acknowledge your word. We acknowledge your presence. Lord, I'm praying that we would each of us turn our hearts toward you. I'm praying today that we each of us would not simply view you in a formal way, but that we would seek to know you uh, in a relationship. We would seek to walk with you. Lord, I'm praying for the person here today who uh, they want to begin praying. They want to begin personal devotion, but they've, they haven't really known exactly how to start or they've allowed it to slip away from them. God, I pray that they would make time in their life. They would start with
with a relationship with you. I'm praying for those of us who serve you in, a, in, the, in the manner of church and in the, the formality. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.